0: This is the Raising Free Thinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Free Thinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief. Books for raising curious, compassionate kids without religion. This is the last of 3 episodes on fear. Instilling fear in children is generally done for one of 3 reasons: to protect them, from physical harm, to control their behavior, or to control their thoughts. I'll get to behavior in an upcoming episode on corporal punishment. Thought control puts us back with Joyce Meyer and Satan two episodes ago. Satan will look for your child's weakest area and attack at that point. And the useful monsters I talked about last time serve the admirable goal of protecting children from harm, including potentially lethal harm. Letting kids make mistakes and learn from them is a great thing. I stump for that all the time. But sometimes it's a luxury. If you allow the occasional slip into a fast-moving river as a lesson, there's a real chance that no further opportunities to use that wisdom will present themselves. So you have to prevent the error, right? So I'm not here to argue the Guarani out of yasi or the north of England out of its river hags. If you describe some extreme threats naturalistically to a very young child, she might try to outsmart the problem. I'm strong. The current's not that fast. The water's not that cold. It's not that deep. But invoke an unpredictable supernatural entity, and they're more likely to recoil from their calculations. That's why when the stakes are really high, many parents in many times and places have resorted to boogeymen of one kind or another. The problem with that is the next step. Once you discover how useful fear is for protecting children from serious harm, many adults can't resist using fear as a tool for general control. But the effectiveness of the fear incentive not only diminishes as we move through the three purposes above, protection from physical harm, behavior control, and thought control, they actually flip, they invert ineffectiveness. In other words, While you might make an argument for using fear to avoid extreme physical harm, fear often makes children less safe, less well-behaved, and less ethical when it's used to exert control over behavior and thinking. Recent research by Elizabeth Gershoff and others has found that kids raised with fear and punishment as incentives for behavior become harder to control and more likely to rebel and to take dangerous risks Than kids raised with positive reinforcement and strong parental attachment. I'll come back to all that in another time. For now, let's take a step back and look at fear itself, one of the most useful gifts of biological evolution. Here's a quick story. About 11 years ago, a few days before Thanksgiving, My daughter, Erin, was in fourth grade, and we were in for the parent-teacher conference. Her teacher described a class assignment they had just done related to Thanksgiving. The students had been asked to write a short description of something for which they were grateful, the usual thing. Some of the kids had written about their parents. Some expressed gratitude for their country, their freedom, their health, or their religious faith. So what was my daughter grateful for? pain said the teacher she said she was most grateful for pain now these were always my favorite moments as a parent when you suddenly get the evidence that you've raised a freethinker and it's just twice as good when there's a muggle in the room now i knew why she said that and i was so proud he continued she said that pain is a warning Without it, our hand could rest in scalding water or dangle in a flame and be seriously damaged before we realized it. We might have a heart attack and not know to go to the doctor. The teacher shook his head, smiling. I must say, I'd never thought of pain as something to be grateful for, but she convinced me. Now, there's a very simple way to understand the process of natural selection. Imagine an early human population. Half of the group has inherited a given characteristic, the ability to feel pain, for example, while the other has not. Does the feature confer a greater likelihood of surviving to reproduce? An inherited ability to feel pain clearly does. Individuals with that ability will pass their genes on at a higher rate than those without it the pain response will become a higher percentage of the total gene pool in each generation, as it's passed on, and within some finite number of generations, by a simple process of proportional increase, the whole group will have the ability to feel pain. That's natural selection in a hundred words. Now apply the same standard to fear. Group A in a given population has a genetic tendency to Shrug off the dark shape moving furtively in the peripheral view and dances at the edge of windy cliffs. Deep, cold, fast moving water is an invitation to a cannonball dive, and nighttime seems like a great time to go looking for firewood in the forest, right? Group B has a genetic tendency to feel dread and caution in these same situations, to fear and therefore avoid those situations. There's little doubt which set of genes will still be humming a hundred generations later. So before we spend too much time bemoaning fear, it's good to take a minute to appreciate the useful evolutionary gift it is. But one problem with evolution is that conditions change faster than adaptations. Our tendencies, fears, and limitations were forged by and for life on the African savanna more than 120,000 hominid generations were spent at the edge of extinction before we began to settle into more stable agricultural communities about 11,000 years ago. Only 500 generations have passed since then, and just 20 generations since the start of the scientific revolution. It's way too little evolutionary time to shape our brains and our behavior in any significant way. Our natural instincts aren't meant to help us make good decisions traveling 70 miles an hour in a metal box surrounded by other great apes doing the same, or even while standing in front of an open refrigerator. Yet it's those misplaced instincts that we're born with. Yes, we can unlearn them, sometimes, but our brains are not wired to periodically re-examine our instincts and discard those that are outdated or even counterproductive. We still leap high and fast when we catch a slithering shape off to the left, well before our conscious mind can think snake. We still feel unsafe on the observation deck of a skyscraper, even though a plexiglass wall makes falling impossible. As far as our midbrain is concerned, we're still in the trees. A generalized hypervigilance has followed us from the Paleolithic. Relaxing our vigilance feels unsafe, careless, foolish. So, instead of dropping our guard, as we became modern and moved off the Savannah, we created new monsters. Even today, we teach our children to fear not only such inanimate dangers as cars and disease and poisons, but also beasts that we created to fill the void left by the primeval predators. But now they're in human form. Immigrants kidnappers, sexual deviance. The psychologist David Myers described five categories of fear, and the monsters we create make perfect sense when you hear this list. First, we fear what our ancestral history has prepared us to fear, like confinement, and heights, and snakes, and spiders, and humans from outside of our tribe. We fear what we can't control. The car is much less safe than the airplane, but our hands are on the steering wheel of one and not the other. We fear things that are immediate, like strangers around us, more than the long term, like climate change. We fear the concrete more than the abstract, which is the reason that parents for millennia have turned abstract dangers into concrete beings. And we fear threats that are readily available in memory. Every plane crash, every child abduction, every home invasion, is covered by the news media and takes on a significance far beyond the actual threat. One of the best ways to help kids get past their fears is to give them agency, show them the control that they have over their own well-being. If a toddler is frightened by a toy robot or the vacuum cleaner, first show them how you can turn it off, but then let them turn it off. That's a demonstration of agency. Our family experienced a little fear-squashing agency seven years ago on a family trip to California. We visited Yosemite and stayed in a little gold rush town at the Hotel Jeffrey. Now, this was an unmissable opportunity because the Jeffrey is billed as the most haunted hotel in California. I even booked Room 22, the most haunted room in the hotel. And right after I booked and paid for it, I ran and told the kids about this fun thing that I'd done. Delaney was 10, and she said, What were you thinking? Seriously, Dad? Well, most of the hotels near the park are already booked, I said, and this one had a lot of rooms available, and they're uh, they're cheap. Gosh, I wonder why she said. Now my kids have always had a healthy skepticism, but their well of experience and thinking about the supernatural isn't much deeper than mine was at their ages, and I would not have jumped at this chance then. But I'd already handed over my gold nuggets for the rooms, so we were going to be staying at the Jeffrey. But to avoid a revolt in the parking lot, I knew I'd have to offer the kids something from my own well. My biggest breakthrough in thinking about religion was realizing that I didn't have to search for the deity to decide whether I believed. I just had to look at the reasons that other people believed and decide whether they were any good, so before the trip, I showed Aaron and Delaney a video on YouTube in which two paranormal investigators visited the Jeffrey hotel my voice on. we're in at one point room. a door it's opens about by itself 7 PM. The door just opened uh, by itself. It wasn't And the investigators all the way, start but it was talking all the way. to the spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know you're trying to get our attention and You got it. Let, yeah. Let's uh, let's see something else. Come on, in. You want to come on in. We appreciate to have this demonstration that's really helps us catalog it and demonstrate it for us and everything. We really want to establish a relationship here. Because that's what it's about, because you're just people like us in the universe. Oh, please, Laney said, and Aaron laughed with relief. Now they were dipping into their own wells of experience, because both of them grew up in a 115-year-old Victorian house in Minnesota. And like the Jeffrey, none of our door frames were quite square. And the slightest change of air pressure would cause a door to drift open. The silliness of somebody else's bad evidence helped their concerns melt away. And... You're just people like us in the universe. ...became one of the catchphrases of our trip. So... I thought we were done. Ha! We pulled up in front of the Jeffrey a few weeks later... and it was perfect. Old place, gaudy wallpaper, dim lighting, wood creaks and paint peels. No check-in counter. You get your keys from the bartender at the period saloon downstairs we got the key, and a little something extra. A ghost detection kit. And upstairs we went. Now, we were the only guests for the night, and we had one room on each of the two floors at opposite ends. There were no phones. And we hadn't had cell reception for 20 miles. This was getting good. And then, it got better. Once the saloon emptied out, even the staff left. They locked the door and left. We were now the only people in the building. And despite all this and the sun going down, everybody was still fine. Until Becca opened the ghost detection kit. Which had instruments like a Gaussmaster electromagnetic field meter, and a motion detector, and a laser thermometer. Suddenly Delaney said, I don't want to do this. All of her earlier fear was back. Now, it's easy to dismiss mediums on YouTube cooing over a door that opens by itself, but this looked an awful lot like science. I wasn't going to force her to do it, of course, but I also thought that we should try to diffuse her fears before the lights went out. I picked up the instructions and read. "Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It looks all official and science-y, I said. And she nodded. Well, there's a word for that. It's called pseudoscience, which means fake science. Something pretending to be science that isn't. From nothing more than that explanation, she suddenly looked visibly relieved. Not completely, but better. Just knowing that there was a word for the fakery gave skepticism a form of its own, something she could hold on to. I read the instructions aloud for one of the gizmos. If the reading is between... 0.3 and 0.5, you may be in the presence of a spirit. We turned on the meter and pointed it at a corner. The needle went up and down from 0 to 0.6. Now they said that means there's a ghost here, I said. How do we know this isn't the normal variation for the thing? She shrugged. We don't, I said, and they know we don't know that. So they make up numbers to freak us out and sell ghost detection kits. Two minutes later, we each had a device and were tiptoeing, Scooby-style, down the dark hallway, humming scary music, pointing at shadows and giggling. Now, all of the room doors were open, so we went into other guest rooms, scanning everything as we went, needles bouncing and lights flashing. By the time we got back to our room, they were back to the reaction they'd had to the video. We had given them agency and experience, The best thing we can do to help our kids avoid the negative consequences of being raised fearfully is to raise them to feel confident and secure. And as it turns out, we know from child development research just how to do that. You start with a responsive and stable home life. Build a strong attachment with parents and other significant adults. Don't hit or humiliate them or let others do so. Encourage them to challenge authority. Including your own. Make them comfortable with difference so they don't have to fear it. Use knowledge to drive out fear. Build a sense of curiosity and wonder that will keep them self educating for life. Let them know that your love and support are unconditional. Teach and expect responsibility and maturity. Encourage self reliance. Help them find and develop flow activities. And lose themselves in those. And with any luck, they will pass that confidence and security on to the next generation. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of OnlySky Media, exploring the whole human experience from a secular perspective. Join us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for raising free thinkers.